Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivin Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. everybody. Welcome back. My name is David Silverstein, and I have the distinct privilege today of being joined by my friend, my former student, and now my colleague here at Yeshivat Oraita, Rabbi Levi Morrow. Rabbi Levi, thank you so much for joining. It's great uh, to have you here. Shalom Rav David. Thank you for having me. Just to provide a little bit of context to the listeners, both in the Oraita community and outside the Oraita community, uh, Rabbi Levi uh, and the Morrow family has been sort of a staple of the larger Oraita orbit. Um, and Rav Levy was my student, actually, in Oraita's second year. He was, no, in Oraita's third year. His second year was his first year. Third year was uh, his second year, and I had the privilege of teaching him in my Gemarshir. And uh, Rav Levy, maybe before we talk about, start talking about the topic for the podcast and talk about um, some of the more nitty-gritty dimensions of that topic, maybe just give a brief biographical introduction of sort of where have you been since uh, the early days of uh, being Yeshiva Bacher and Yeshiva Oraita? Yeah, so as you said, I uh, came to Oraita in its second year. I was here as a student for two years and then two more years as a madrich, um, which time I started learning for smicha at the Shehabar Sephardic Center, the Beit Midrash Sephardi, also here in the Old City. Um, then I made Aliyah and spent a year studying at Haaretzion, and I started uh, a, my undergrad at Michalot Yaakov Herzog, the teaching college attached to Haaretzion, where I studied Tanakh and Jewish thought along with education. Um, I finished my smicha at the uh, Sephardi Center, and I finished my undergrad, and then I went to, uh, to Tel Aviv University for, to do a master's in Jewish thought. Um, and in my undergrad and um, my master's, I began studying Rav Shagar, who I encountered in uh, my undergrad as, as the only rabbi who ever really dealt with postmodernism. I had a couple teachers tell me that. Um, and then I, was, you know, I studied him further at, uh, I wrote on him further at Tel Aviv University. Um, and now I'm working on my PhD on Rosalovetric at Hebrew University uh, here in Yerushalayim. Um, and along the way, I was lucky to, to get married, and we've had a couple of kids since then. Excellent. Uh, yeah. You forgot the most important feature of your current biography, oh, which no. is that you're also a Machshava Rebbe and Yeshiva Doraita. This is true. So, this is true. Um, actually, when we were thinking about a topic for this podcast, a Talking and Learning podcast, um, I started thinking more about the issue of postmodernism. This has been a topic that I've been thinking about for a long time. I listened to some very uh, interesting podcasts about this topic recently. I've been reading about it. And I was thinking about who would be the perfect person to talk about this very loaded but very important topic, namely postmodernism. And all of a sudden, uh, my former student, my current friend and colleague, Rabbi Levi Morrow, came to mind. And really what we want to do today is sort of touch upon this issue of postmodernism and not sort of only think about it in the academic sense as to sort of what is postmodernism, what does it mean, how has it been applied, but really try and highlight the unique contribution of Rav Shagar. Rav Shagar is one of the most important contemporary Jewish theologians. Unfortunately, he passed away very young. But even after his passing, his students at Yeshivat Siach have put a lot of effort and a lot of energy into publishing uh, his writings. Now, he's written on a lot of different topics. Postmodernism is only one small feature of his larging, larger sort of uh, writing corpus. But it's a very important feature. And I thought today we would talk not only, again, about postmodernism sort of writ large, 
but more specifically about Rav Shagar and his contribution. So maybe before we begin with Rav Shagar, maybe Rav Levi as somebody who has studied Rav Shagar and studied postmodernism both at an undergraduate <coughs> and graduate level, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the unique features of postmodernism. I mean, when you read uh, the news and you read social media, you know, postmodernism can be perceived by the average onlooker to be sort of this like uh, tell-all phrase that people use to describe everything bad going on in the world, right? So if you're somebody who's more conservative in their philosophical orientations, they may look at postmodernism and say, wait a second, this is uh, the source of all evil in the realm of sort of the contemporary world culture and contemporary trends, etc. But sort of beyond the rhetoric, what exactly is the claim of postmodernism and sort of how would you distinguish it from the sort of sister claim, uh, what, we, what is also known as uh, modernism. So uh, you put it well in saying it's sort of the, uh, the boogeyman uh, and that's how it functions. Um, I also that, you know, I mentioned that I discovered Rav Shigar after hearing a couple of teachers say, oh, he's the only rabbi who really dealt with postmodernism. And that uh, struck my interest because the only thing I knew about postmodernism is that rabbis don't like it. <laughs> they use it as a bad word. Uh, and so that made me curious. Uh, but I was, you know, fresh out of yeshiva. I'd never didn't know anything about postmodernism. So I uh, started studying, you know, texts about postmodernism in order to understand Rav Shigar. Uh, but the second part that's a part of that is that it's hard to pin down what postmodernism is because no one ever says I'm a postmodernist or this is what I believe and it's postmodernism. Postmodernism is something that one person calls another person or another person's thought. Right? They say you're a postmodernist or that's a postmodernism. Um, and so that makes it difficult to pin down exactly what it is. Um, there's also a confusion that happens between sort of po postmodernism in popular culture and in the uh, broader American culture wars that seem to envelope the whole world sometimes. And then postmodernism as ideas that originate from thinkers and writers. Uh, and those aren't really things you can always separate because the people, uh, you know, uh, on the ground who create the culture and, you know, who are movers and shakers in, in culture and media... Uh, are working with texts and, and quotes from uh, writers and thinkers. So maybe um, just to sort of like frame it a little differently, although I definitely hear what you're saying that defining postmodernism is part of the uh, mysterious feature of the enterprise. Um, I'm pretty sure I read an article not that long ago by, uh, a, a, not a rabbi, maybe he, be, he may be a rabbi also, but his name is I think Alan Jakowitz or Zakowitz in tradition where he talked about Rav Shagar. And I don't remember specifically if it was his citation, but I think basically if you had to sort of pin down, at least in not academic, not sort of popular, somewhere in the middle, uh, parlance basically, um, about what exactly is, uh, is, is uh, postmodernism about. And the claim basically is that postmodernism is an attempt to challenge sort of the grand narratives of modernism, right? If you imagine sort of modernism as being defined by all these big ideas, you know, communism and socialism and fascism and sort of all these more macro visions of humanity. And uh, postmodernism comes along and says, let's be a little more humble in terms of thinking about the extent to which we can sort of describe everything in macro terms. And therefore, the claim is, is that what postmodernism is trying to do, at least at its core, is to challenge sort of the grand narratives that were offered by modernism and by extension start to question whether or not many of those grand narratives are simply sort of social constructs. In other words, they're narratives that are rooted in a specific place and a specific time. And because they're rooted in a specific place and a specific time, it's tough to determine that those are fundamentally true with a capital T. Rather, another way to think about them is that they may reflect a certain lowercase t truth, 
But nonetheless, don't they can't claim a monopoly on truth in the ultimate sense. So would you sort of agree that's sort of like one way to at least for the two minutes we have in sort of defining it in this podcast, you know, what, what would you say about, uh, would you say that's sort of a fair summary in terms of uh, postmodernism for the average yeshiva bacher? Yeah, I, th- I tend to think of postmodernism as the postmodernity moment when modernism eats its own tail. That modernism uh, entailed, at least Western modernity entailed, you know, suspicious, uh, suspicion and, you know, challenging all the narratives before that. The idea of God and, uh, you know, authority and tradition as things that determine what everything in our lives means and how we should be shaping our lives. That modernity uh, in the West challenged all that and said, no, we're going to put man in the center and we're going to, you know, man is the measure of all things. Man can determine what's true. Man can do philology and, and you know, take apart sacred texts and take apart traditional institutions. And postmodernism said, okay, that was good, but you didn't do go far enough. You have all of your own narratives that you're still maintaining. We have to undermine those. And that basic undermining impulse and the questioning of things, um, of whether there's any real sort of absolute... Uh, substance underlying anything gives rise to the different kinds of, you know, the thinker postmodernism and the culture postmodernism and all the different things. So I'll just pick up on that. And I think that, you know, the way you articulated it, I think, is sort of a, a sharp formulation. And you can understand just hearing it why a traditional thinker would have a hard time with it, right? In other words, Judaism, it may have been challenged by modernism in the sense that all of a sudden there was an attempt to replace revelation with reason, but there was also a sort of a simultaneous attempt to to replace one truth with another truth, and therefore the goal of Judaism was to demonstrate that sort of we were right and they were wrong. I like to think about this in terms of like, you know, different Kirov paradigms, right? Sometimes you go to universities and you'll have these Kirov models, which their goal is to demonstrate that, you know, the Torah is true and sort of the academy has it wrong, right? And therefore, there's an assumption that's sort of, you know, we may be disagreeing about the bottom line, but we share an assumption that there is a thing called truth. The only question is, who has access to it? Postmodernism is much more ambitious because postmodernism comes along and says, maybe this whole idea of capital T truth, right, is an illusion. In other words, maybe all ideas, even religious ideas, are rooted in time and place, and therefore, postmodernism sort of comes to challenge not only modernist assumptions, but also even religious assumptions that are oftentimes rooted in at least larger beliefs that religious people believe to be true. So you can imagine why if somebody's a religious thinker, they're going to say, wait a second, I may not like modernism and secularism and all these different attacks on religion, but at least I could dialogue with it. Whereas postmodernism, what's the shared conversation, right? In other words, I as a religious person believe and there's something called truth, whereas the postmodernist comes along and says everything is a social construct, so in what way are we even dialoguing? So I think one of the ways that I've seen people sort of deal with this tension is to distinguish between, there are different formulations here of what they call hard postmodernism versus soft postmodernism. Now, I am by no means a scholar of postmodernism, but I have seen this phrase come up in different things that I've read. I'm curious, given your knowledge of this topic, what exactly is the claim of the distinction between soft and hard postmodernism? Like, is it, is it just sort of hard postmodernism assumes that there really is no truth at all? Everything is relativistic and everything is socially constructed, whereas soft postmodernism acknowledges that there may be a real truth out there, but it's sort of beyond our cultural grasp. Is that all that soft postmodernism is adding to the larger conversation? So I have to admit, I've, I've heard that this uh, distinction between hard and soft postmodernism does not originate with Rev Shigar. I have not managed to track it down outside of Rev Shigar and people who are working off of Rev Shigar. For Rev Shigar, it's about the question of, do you stay at the negative, suspicious moment, or can you move past it? 
right? If postmodernism was the sort of ultimate amplification of modernity's suspicion and negation and saying no to everything that came before, saying, no, this is fake, this isn't real, someone made this up, um, then postmodernism, you know, amplified that. Can you ever move past that? Can you say, okay, maybe everything's made up. Maybe we have no way of anchoring things in reality, in fact, what then? Can you move past it? And for Chagar, and this is what he wants to get with soft postmodernisms, can you still find things meaningful? Maybe things you can say, okay, I can't prove this, but it's still meaningful for you know reasons X, Y, and Z. Uh, or it's the best I can do in terms of arriving at truth, and I'm okay working with that. I don't have to live in the, the negative moment of suspicion. But, but let's just sort of uh, flesh that out a little bit. In other words, I think you would agree, although obviously feel free to correct me, is that it, it would be hard to harmonize uh, a traditional approach to faith with what we're going to call for the purpose of simplicity hard postmodernism. In other words, if you're going to claim that postmodernism fundamentally assumes that everything right, is rooted in a social construct, so then it would be hard to imagine that traditional faith, which does believe in at least the theoretical possibility that we have access to truth, even if we're acknowledging that there may be some ambiguity given our experiences, we do believe in a real truth out there. So it, it would be hard for me to imagine you know, how one would sort of start to reconcile claim A, which assumes that there is no capital T truth, with claim B, which assumes it's there, right? It just may, may mean that sometimes we may not be able to demonstrate it conclusively. So before we get to soft postmodernism, would you agree that if you're a real hard postmodernist, it would be hard to sort of maintain traditional faith while adopting that posture? If you're a hard postmodernist, absolutely. Um, I think part of this question, what does that mean again? Because there's no one who says, you know, this object right in front of me doesn't exist. It's there. Does it ever exist without my own interpretation of it? Could I ever encounter it without my interpretation? That's what they're trying to, to rule out. And where that distinction becomes important is questions of like things that are, are not things in the world in front of us right? Nevuah, um, prophecy, values, things that are good and bad, uh, you know, prohibited, permitted, like those sort of ideas that aren't tangible in any sense. Um, what reality do they have outside ourselves? What level of reality do they have outside ourselves? Like, are they something that's a feature of our community, of, you know, the humanity in lar writ large, or of like the, the very material of the world? Those sort of distinctions are the ones that even so, soft postmodernists really uh, have to, to grapple with and maybe challenge some of. Well, let's sort of talk about this more and bring this down. Obviously, the challenge of talking philosophy, especially abstract philosophy on a podcast, is that you know most of our listeners are probably uh, driving in their car or uh, walking on the street or at the gym, and we're engaged in abstract pill-pull about hard versus soft postmodernism. So obviously, I think that that's an important philosophical and theological debate to sort of uh, quantify, but let's try and sort of transition slightly and talk about this in sort of real-world terms. So we've been discussing up until now about the general category of postmodernism, different dimensions of it, of soft versus hard postmodernism, at least in the writings or the description of Rev Shagar. But let's sort of now transition. You alluded to this earlier. What, what exactly is Rav Shagar's general orientation when thinking about the world of postmodernism? Well, let's give some very concrete examples, right? Let's say, for example, somebody were to say to Rav Shagar, now obviously you're not Rav Shagar, but let's say for argument's sake, try and put your head in the mind of Rav Shagar, I will just say parenthetically that uh, you are coming out with a book uh, pretty soon, hopefully soon, um, on the writings of Rav Shagar, specifically on the Chagim, Drashod and Chagim, so certainly you have uh, your head and your heart deeply in the writings of uh, Rav Shagar. But let's try and sort of flesh out exactly what his chiddush was. What exactly was he sort of contributing to this larger conversation? I mean, let's say someone were to come to him and say, I struggle with my own belief 
because I acknowledge that had I been born to, let's say, a Muslim family in Saudi Arabia, so my reality would be totally different. In other words, I'm born into an observant family, I'm raised in a certain cultural context, and my Jewish experience is so unique to me, but if I was born in a totally different place, there would be a different me. So how can we sort of determine, the, the, the student comes to Rav Shigar and says, how can I feel in any way that what I'm tapping into is really the transcendent truth? If after all, it seems almost like it's just a, you know, a function of chance, a function of coincidence, or a function of providence. But nonetheless, my life would be qualitatively different if I was born to the Morrow family versus if you were born to the Silverstein family. So how, how would Rav Shigar try to anchor that person's faith? Um, so he has a very interesting discussion of this in the, uh, the essay called Living with Nothingness, the 2017 Magid book. Um, he basically says, we, you, know, you were born into that moment. Why is that insignificant? Modernity gives us all kinds of binaries for splitting up the world and thinking about how we uh, you know, understand it and have our place in it. And one of them is chance versus necessity. One of them is truth versus falsehood. And identifying chance and falsehood on the one hand and necessity on truth on the other. Same with the particular and local on the one hand and the universal on the other. Right? So why do we think what's universal and necessary is true necessarily? Those things all go together. And something that's happened to be that way and only you know, just for you is necessarily false. Well, it may not be necessarily false, but let's try and talk about anchoring that faith. In other words, if you think back to the examples of modernism, so the modernist would try and anchor his faith in some type of argument. Maybe it would be a logical argument. Maybe he would appeal to the classical arguments for God's existence. Maybe he would look to contemporary philosophers. Maybe he would start talking the language of analytical philosophers, Christian philosophers, Jewish philosophers, whoever they are, who try and demonstrate um, the rational sort of validity of traditional faith. But for Rav Shagar and for people who are interested in postmodernism, what would you look towards to anchor your faith? Meaning, what would be the source of the faith if you can't anchor it in some type of transcendent truth claim, even if you can't prove that claim, but at least if you feel, right, that that claim is real. So for Rav Shagar, what, what would be the source of a person's faith? I mean, on this sense, I would think that the fact that you feel it's true is essentially enough, meaning you can't lie to yourself, right? Rav Shagar is, uh, does not believe you can turn off your brain and say, like, okay, it's been, there are good challenges against this, but I believe anyways. Um, but... Uh, just to put Rav Shigar alongside someone like Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Soloveitchik is also a person you can read. You will not find, as far as I'm aware, a single proof or logical reason to believe. In fact, he very often rejects proofs and says they're just rooted. Proofs are attempts to articulate in objective terms what's an ultimately subjective feeling. And trying to make that jump from subject to objective ruins it. And Rav Shigar would agree with that, right? In some sense, there's something, uh, if you before said that, you know, Kirov is like trying to outmodernize the modernists, trying to say we, we're doing the modern project with you and we just know how to do it really well so we get to the proofs. Rosovicic and, and Rav Shigar both articulate like, no, actually Judaism belongs in the subjective realm in some sense, that trying to locate it in the terms of objectivity uh, can be problematic, at least in terms of emunah. Uh, like you can't you know, rule out objectivity entirely, but there's something very important about our own subjective beliefs. Right, but, but what I would, again, I understand what you're saying, and I think that's like an important distinction. Salvation does explicitly sort of say that people thought that when the Kantian critique of religion sort of became normative and all of a sudden 
people started to think that proving God's existence was actually no longer plausible. So people thought that, wait a second, this is going to destroy religion, but he actually, think it's, he actually thinks it helped religion, it freed religion from the shackles of trying to prove things all the time. But I, w- I would say one of the differences is that you know, when you're talking the language of religious experience, even for somebody who acknowledges that not everything is simply going to be an algorithm, they would still have to demonstrate the epistemological value of religious experience. Meaning, there are scholars like Jerome Gelman from Ben Gurion University and other people who talk about the um, larger um, value from a truth perspective of religious experience, right? And I think part of the challenge, I think, when people talk the language of postmodernism is it sounds like, again, I, I am an amaris when it comes to postmodernism, so I'm really sort of a novice, but it sounds to people like me and people who aren't familiar with all the intricacies of the postmodernist claim is that it's not that the religious experience is somehow valid because, based on some external criteria, right? Religious experience is valid just because that is the way in which we're experiencing the world, which is totally fine. But it runs this problem that if you start to talk about the idea that the experience is valid because I experienced the world that way, well then, sort of, there's no way to ever have a dialogue with somebody about whose experience is more closely aligning to the truth. Meaning, if I come to you and I say, my experience is deeply rooted in traditional Judaism, as a result of which I think that the postmodern claim would at least validate and sort of allow, free me from the need to prove everything, well then my, you know, Wahhabi Islamist friend would say the same thing to me, that his experience of faith sort of anchors him in radical Islam. So one of us, either we're both wrong or we're both right, right? Or we basically, basically, we basically both agree to say that, you know what, it doesn't really matter. And it sounds like what you're describing is we would basically both say, listen, like we're both rooted in our own stories and let's just acknowledge that reality. And there isn't really much to talk about beyond that. There's a lot to, to unpack in the very specific that, but just to, to jump onto that last bit, right? What there is to talk about, right? So Rav Shigargan explicitly dealing with this in an essay on justice and values or justice and ethics, something like that in the, the 2017 Magid volume. Um, if everyone is just rooted in their own stories, then in some sense, then you have everything to talk about. Because if you, um, when you want to objectively prove something, then what you basically want to be able to do is to compel yourself to believe something, at the very least, potentially even compel other people to believe it, to say, like, you have to believe this if I, if I can prove it to you, right? If not, you're living in bad faith, you're lying to yourself, you're doing whatever, right? When you say everything is subjective, we're all sort of rooted in our own stories, our own religious experience, then you acknowledge we might never be able to communicate that. And so for everything else, we have to talk about it. We have to figure out how we're going to live together, right? And that might not, it might not be possible. Right, the Wahhabi, uh, uh, you know, fundamentalist, uh, the the terrorist, like someone who's doing that, you can't talk to them no matter what. You could have an objective proof; it's not going to help. But for Rabbi saying, if you want to live together in society with people, you can either try and compel them to agree with you logically, or you can talk to them about stuff and say, how are we going to make it work despite all our differences? Right. I guess for me, I guess the challenge even when hearing that is sort of like there, de- there tends to be sort of a blurring of the line here between what I would call philosophy and sociology. In other words, if you were to argue to not you, but if sort of Rav Shigar would come and say, listen, you know, there's no way that I'm going to be able to demonstrate conclusively to, let's say, I don't know, in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict that, you know, one position is right and the other one is wrong. So if we're, the best thing to do is sort of embrace our own stories and sort of live harmoniously while acknowledging that, you know, we don't really have a choice, I can understand that. In other words, that's the claim, basically, which says that 
it doesn't make a difference who's right, right? What matters at the end of the day is that we're both anchored in our own stories and our own narratives. And no matter how much we try and argue about it, we're not going to convince the other. So on pragmatic front, let's just sort of, you know, move the goalpost and say that our goal is to just ultimately live together in harmony, acknowledging each other's sort of uh, place while not asking either of us to compromise on our own narrative. Actually, I articulated this one time to somebody. We were talking about this, and I said, like, I'm not by any means a political scientist or have really a sophisticated sense of, you know, the way to solve the Arab Israeli conflict. But one of the things I was always interested in is how in the context of the peace era of Oslo and stuff like that, so Bibi, who's been the prime minister, like, you know, since the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, so Bibi would uh, always insist that the Arabs acknowledge Israel as a Jewish state, right? And you understood from his perspective why that was so important. But you could also understand that what he was asking them to do, basically, is sort of embrace our story. Right. And what you're basically saying is that not what you, but what Shigar is basically saying, to use that metaphor, is that you're never going to get them to embrace our story. It would almost be unreasonable. They live in a different sort of reality. The goal is to allow them to continue their story. Maybe their story says, we wish you weren't here. Maybe our story is, we wish you weren't here. But neither of us are going anywhere. So given that reality, we now have to sort of come together to sort of make things work. And I, I can sort of understand that as a matter of social policy. What I struggle with, again, is this idea that, you know, my experience, right, in terms of grounding me in my identity by itself, right, is something that is going to anchor my faith in a way that I'm going to feel so compelled to, especially, by the way, for people who live in multiple worlds. And again, I apologize for going on for a while here, but I will just kind of push this point a little further, is that if you live in a space where you're totally devoted to an extreme formulation of religion or any dimension of life, and you're so bought into that exclusively, you can imagine that how that is who you are in your totality. But for modern people who live like many stories simultaneously, like what would that even look like? Like how would you anchor yourself in your story if your story is a story of an American, a story of an Israeli, a story of a Jew, a story of somebody who's experiencing uh, secular wisdom, a story of somebody who's questioning secular wisdom, a story of somebody who's a mystic, somebody somebody's a rationalist. Like well, there are so many stories. How do we know which one is really us? So it's a good question. Um, and just sort of parenthetically, I always think that the uh, one of the weakest parts of Shigar on translation into English and into the, the broader Western world is that it's very easy in uh, Israel to say, oh, we well, live with one foot in religion and one foot in the secular world, because both of those worlds are Jewish. And once you go outside of, of you know, Israel, then it's one foot in Judaism and one foot in Western Christianity, even if it's secularized. Um, but... More broadly, and this is somewhere he goes in one of his, his, uh, his Hanukkah drashot, his beautiful drasha on the Pach Hashem, and they just found where it is. And it has, it's a little, has a little seal of oil. It's not you know, a full Jewish life. There's something Jewish still there, something holy and tahor and pure still there, even as it's in a broader context. Right? But he's saying that the question of authenticity, you just asked, which one is authentically you, which one is authentically your story, versus in part of all of the different you know, mishmash of stories that make you up, maybe that's all the story. Maybe that's like one whole larger story. Right. It's interesting. I, um, I mentioned this to you before we started the podcast that I was listening to a podcast recently uh, with two scholars about postmodernism. It's a very interesting podcast. There's a podcast called Ladat Lahamin, an organization called Machon Hayadai or something like that. And they brought on two scholars. One of them is also, like you, a student in the Beit Midrash of uh, Rav Shagar, at least the sort of large Beit Midrash. Her name is Oriyam Vorach. And the other one is a rabbi, Yassi, I think it's Tesla or something like that. And uh, one of the things they're talking about was sort of similar to what we're talking about here, but uh, Rav Yassi made a comment that he said that Rav Shagar in a few places, he actually mentioned four times in Rav Shagar's writings, may have been, even been in one book where he talks about 
the ideal educational model being one where as a young age it sort of resembles more the Haredi model where we're almost exclusively or actually exclusively rooted in the story of Torah and that you know he doesn't say this but the implication is sort of like from a young age if you start mixing things together right you know it can be hard to find out what your core identity is and actually he was arguing in this podcast that you know part of the challenge of postmodernism is how do you sort of make faith viable for people and what he was claiming was the way you make faith viable viable for people is making it sort of a, a very profound or maybe the most profound aspect of who they are and when they feel that, well, then they sort of can't imagine their life without faith. And then when they sort of have these sort of philosophical backing to, listen, I don't have to prove this anymore, that's when it becomes empowering because you feel so married to this identity, you sort of can't get away from it. And the only thing that's pulling you away from it is, well, is it rational enough? And all of a sudden, postmodernism comes along and says, listen, let's, let's stop obsessing about that question. You default back to where you are. But I think that part of the inherently built-in problem of the conversation we're having is that if you're not raised in uh, sort of a early childhood Haredi system, so you're constantly sort of in limbo as to your identity, and it's hard to really feel anchored. And when you don't feel anchored, you sort of get back to this conversation of like, you know, what exactly is the function of truth if I myself can't even anchor myself in my specific truth, you know, just to sort of, um, maybe we have time for sort of one more uh, follow-up here. Um, I know that oftentimes in, in contemporary parlance, and actually there was an interesting debate in McCoy Schoen between uh, Do Joel Finkelman, who wrote an article uh, sort of criticizing the religious Zionist community's um, overusage of the term postmodernism to sort of criticize anything that they perceive to be problematic, and then responses on Facebook from Chaim Navon and other different people who, who were defending the claim. And basically the idea was is that Joel Finkelman was saying, correct me if you have a different interpretation, that listen, the postmodernists are not trying to sort of deconstruction, deconstruct, deconstruct society with shame deconstruction. To use Chaim Navon's language, peruk l'shem peruk. They're not trying to just ruin the world, right? They actually think the world would be a better place if we deconstruct certain things. And um, his claim was that like, you know, they're not, they don't have like a subversive agenda. They actually have a proactive agenda. They think the world will be better off when we're sort of not married to these you know, grand visions. But I think given what we're talking about now is you, you can imagine how someone could come along and just say, well, wait a second, since we're not married to uh, these ideas, so the language of like my truth, which is so popular and so commonplace, I mean, I'm not even talking about like alternative facts in the Trumpian sense. I'm just talking about the idea that like everything is my truth. You can imagine how that would be sort of an outgrowth of this type of thinking because at the end of the day, who are you? You're yourself. You choose that identity. You, you, it may evolve. It may shift. And ultimately, your truth reflects who you are right now. It may change in 20 minutes. So how would you sort of uh, diffuse that anxiety that the abstraction of postmodernism may be may lead to some uh, pretty uh, antinomian trends in terms of thinking about anything going on the level of truth. It's a good question. Um, I think a couple of things. One is that on some level, um, Joel Finkelman is both right and wrong. Right, he's right that the the uh, the postmodern half of the culture war, as it were, right, the people who are called postmodernists uh, in, the, in the culture war are not trying to just destroy things, right? Not for the same just for sake of destroying things. I do think there's a sort of deeply anti-normative uh, impulse there, specifically because having normative values, having lines that are drawn clearly, make it hard, it may mean there are automatically going to be some people who are marginalized and are pushed out. And so the ethical impulse of let's make sure everyone has a space in our community 
itself rules out having red lines. So if I recall to the end of uh, Dr. Finkelman's article and another good article he wrote from 2006 uh, or so called On the Irrelevance of Religious Zionism. I think the title uh, was the best. It was a great article, but the title couldn't be any better. Yes, great, great title. Um, he does the same thing talking about the, he talks about both in both articles, the importance of red lines for communal cohesion, right? Any community has to have red lines, who is in, who's out, uh, in order just to have identity. Uh, and on some level, the uh, the left half of the American culture war wants there to be no red lines because that means there are people who are outside. You don't want to have that. And so what that ends up doing is meaning the people who actually are outside the community is the people who want to maintain the existence of red lines um, so that you end up with a red line anyways. Um, but I think that the question is how you balance the ethical impulse of inclusion and making sure there's space for people who sort of by definition won't always fit the uh, the red lines of any community is uh, a good section in the Mora Nebuchim. It takes some Talmud Torah. The Mora Nebuchim, third section of the Mora, chapter 34, um, Rav says, rules are always made for the majority. Uh, they you know work for most people most of the time, but not for all people all of the time. There's definitely going to be people for whom it doesn't work. And so the question is, how do you try and balance having communal norms, communal values, and the inclusion of people who, just by virtue of being individuals, don't always fit those values? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think actually, I mean, that, that Rambam, uh, Aldat Harov, I mean, we could do an entire podcast just on that Rambam. That's, I'll come back I mean, for it. Okay, fine. That's, that's a really incredible, highly provocative, and actually uh, deeply uh, contested passage in the Rambam. I think there's actually an entire book called Aldat Harov with different scholars talking about what exactly the Rambam meant there. Um, but um, like, I think you're right. I think that you know this issue of red lines and, again, the sort of interplay between theology, philosophy, and sociology, trying to take abstract ideas and bring them into the world is part of the challenge here. That, in other words, postmodernism at the end of the day is an academic venture. You know, and it's something they talk about in the academy. And next thing you know, they're talking about it on Twitter. You know, so I can't really think, honestly, off the top of my head, of many other sort of uh, influential cultural trends that have been as impactful in the non-academic sphere. I mean, I'm 43. I'm trying to think throughout my 43-year existence if I can remember any other term that originates in the academy that actually becomes so popular that like every single gap year kid, all they want to do is talk about postmodernism, even though they probably never even read a book on postmodernism because it has this like really profound cultural appeal. I mean, I think the answer is that nothing originates in the academy. The academy is really good at reflecting on and making up new words for talking about what's going on already. But so postmodernism gets off the ground really with uh, a French thinker named Jean something Levitar. I'm not good with names in English, let alone in French. Um, writes the postmodern condition, but he's trying to describe what's already going on. So one of the other big philosophical movements that's in contemporary society is authenticity. But authenticity comes from like the Romantic movement at the end of the 19th century in Germany, and then it makes it into existentialism in the academy, and then back into popular culture. Right. I mean, I think I think there definitely is like an interplay going on here between like the academic sphere and the uh, sort of the language of the street. Um, I think what's unique here, though, is that you know you do have you know you know an attempt to sort of you know define some very uh, radical sort of theological no, some radical. Uh, trends going on through the academic lens. Obviously, that in and of itself isn't uh, totally new. One last uh, comment, just very quickly. Uh, do you have any other recommendations for people looking to learn more about postmodernism, and specifically Rav Shagar? Well, it's, it's you know postmodernism and Rav Shagar. I, I'm a big fan of holding those two apart. Right. I don't think it's it's I think it's one small part of what he's doing, and even then, I think really he's doing something else because I don't think he was post, I don't think soft postmodernism really counts. Uh, if you want to talk about Rav Shagar and postmodernism, the place to look is Dr. Miriam Feldman K wrote a book on Rav Shagar. And um, and um, and uh, Dr. Tamar Ross it came out from the Littman Library a couple years ago in English. I don't remember what it's called right now, off the top of my head. Um, as I said, I don't want to put Rav Shagar and postmodernism together. Um, Rabbi Zach Shubhav's book 
is, as far as I'm concerned, the resource to go for for English writing on Rav Shigar. Um, you can Google Rav Shigar uh, in English. You'll find all kinds of stuff from me, from other people. But as a book, Torah Goes Forth from Zion by Rabbi Zach Truboff, essays on Rav Cook and Rav Shigar, both separately and together. They're phenomenal essays. I recommend it as a whole. Bizarre um, Hashem, there's like there's also the the 2017 uh, Magid volume, Faith Shattered and Restored, but that can be kind of tough to read. And Bizarre Hashem, hopefully by you know the beginning of 2023, my translation of Shigar should be called Living Time: Festival Discourses for the Present Age should be out. Okay, sounds exciting. We're excited to uh, see the book, and hopefully we'll get a discount for right to students. But um, first of all, I want to just thank you, thank uh, Lady for coming on uh, the podcast. Great to have you, A, as a thinker, B, as a colleague, and C, most importantly, as a Right to Alum on the Right to Podcast. So thank you so much. And this was another episode of the Tsarich Iyun Podcast brought to you by Yeshibat Oraita. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us, righttopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any comments, observations, we're always happy to hear. Wishing everybody a great day.